All right, now, who here is old enough to know what a negative is? A negative. All right, there's a few of us. I'm assuming anyone under 30 is just a little bit uh, weirded out by this. A negative, when, when cameras used to have film in them and used to have to have film in them, the bit inside it that received it, that, that film, actually doesn't get the right colours on it. It has the opposite colours from what it receives. That's what the film does. It creates a negative, and then you flip that around in the development process, and it, it negates, puts the opposite colours in, and then that's how you get your correct image. Now, I wonder if, in these first few verses here of Zephaniah, that if using this technique of using the negative will actually help us to see a little bit better. I'm going to read Zephaniah's opening words. Feel free to open it up there. It's verses 2 and 3 in those sort of little section there. But I'm going to read their negative. And I, this is a audience participation time. I want you to tell me what bit of the Bible it reminds you of. Okay? Here we go. I will fill the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will fill it with men and women and animals. I will fill the air with birds and the sea with fish. The blessed will have everything good when I plant him on the earth. What does that sound like to you? Lot, I, I got old, young, everyone heard Genesis. So if that's the negative, what are we getting? We're getting here decreation, uncreation, the, the, the wiping out of all that is that God has once formed. It's a dark scene. It's a big scene. And, and not just for Judah. You notice as the, as the, as the passage goes on, it, it, God's very, very clear. All the nations around as well, the whole world is going to be unmade, says Zephaniah. Now, if that's the message God gave you to be as a prophet, you're walking around in the middle of Hobart, the whole world is going to be unmade. Everything's going to come crashing down. You've got the sandwich board, the end is nigh on it, and everything like that. I imagine a whole bunch of people are going to be asking, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to say that? And this is good, because Zephaniah tells us in verse 1, and it's worth checking out, who does Zephaniah think that he is? Well, he says, verse 1, I am the son of a whole bunch of guys with their names ending in Ayah. Now, let's put this in context. Here's the list of Judah's kings, okay? So you've got Israel's kings there on the left, and Judah's kings on the right. You won't be able to read any of that. But I'll zoom in just to see here, because our narrator tells us, that Zephaniah was preaching around the time of King Josiah, that one down the bottom there, right? So Zephaniah is alive and kicking in about this section of, of, of kings, right? In, Zeph in, in Josiah's reign. And the other thing the narrator wants us to know is that Zephaniah can trace his line back to a bloke named Hezekiah. Which, if you think about it, and you grab it, you look it up, and you go, oh, hold on. Why did Zephaniah put his lineage in there? Because he's a cousin to the king. He's part of the royal family. He's not just some random. I, I, know, how, I know how things work on the inside. I know, I know how the palace and the government and all that stuff, that's, that's where I, you know, like me and Josiah, like mucked around, you know, behind the throne and laughing while, you know, granddad and uncle were, were being kings and stuff. Now, I don't pretend to know much about these things, but when royals or royal insiders come out with tell-alls, they don't tend to come out, well, they, they tend to be embarrassing, don't they, for royal families. Now, these predictions of world-ending doom, well, that's starting to make sense. This is a royal tell-all of everything that's gone wrong 
and it's got these kind of consequences, well, let's hear what Zephaniah is going to unpack. Because Zephaniah and Yahweh has got a lot here against Judah. And we're going to get the insider's view. All right, let's have a look. Verse 4. Verse 4. I'll stretch out my hand against Judah um, and all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and they'll swear by the Lord and they'll also swear by Moloch. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. You, you can see God's problem here. You can see his complaint. Israel are worshipping other gods, Baal, Molech, and he is just not having it any longer. Anyone who worships Baal, Molech, the stars, the trees, anything, they will be cut off from this world. Now, it's interesting. Did you notice that these people actually haven't stopped going to church? Like, they haven't stopped worshipping Yahweh. God's still getting his sacrifices. There's, there's, there's still money going into the, into the um, offering plate. It's just that they had other things going on too. Verse 5, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, they swear by the Lord, but also swear by Moloch. You know, I've got, I've got Yahweh on my side. I mean, he's traditional Israeli after all, so, you know, he's part of our culture. But, but the Babylonians, mate, they had a cracking harvest this year. We've got to get some of that Baal action as well if we want to really keep our competitive edge. And, the, and Moloch, well, he, I've heard that the guys who worship him, they don't have any bugs in their corn. Let's, we've got to get amongst that as well. And, and Israel's God won't tolerate it. He's not happy. Now, if you're thinking that God sounds a bit jealous here, you are right. That's exactly what he is. He is jealous for the hearts of his people. He wants them to know that he's their God. They owe him everything, not, other, not these other false gods. They want to have the best of both worlds. And God says, no, no, it's just you and me or we're done. I'm either your God or I'm not. I'm like a husband who's unwilling to share the love of his life with another. That's God with people. That's what he's like. Is it bad? Is it that bad? I mean, the punishment God's talking about is pretty bad. So is the crime that bad? That's the question. This, this flirting. Is it worth decreating the whole cosmos over it? Well, given that um, Israel's God has actually been accused of, of overreacting, uh, have you, you heard uh, new atheists or, or people in the street or your friends say that the God of the Old Testament, which is this part of the Bible is in, seems very petty and, and very, very happy to judge and, and, and just a jealous, petty, pathetic little God? Well, if you could, we, we need to have an answer for that, don't we? So let's listen as Zephaniah opens up on the state of the people's hearts. And he starts with his family. He starts with his cousins. Uh, which is the, where's the verse? Sorry, I just want to make sure I get the right exact number for you. It's, yeah, verse 8. Um, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those who array themselves in foreign attire. You see, the leaders in particular would prefer to look like Baal's people or Molech's people than to look distinctly, distinctly like Yahweh's people, like a, like a teenager who doesn't want to be seen with mum and dad. You know, they drop them off at the party and you're like, no, no, drop me off three blocks away and I'm just going to walk in off the street. I don't want anyone to associate us. And that's them with their God. Now, as a teenager, really only got a few years where you got an excuse of raging hormones, you know, to, to give you an excuse for that. Because, you know, what if your husband treated you like this? I love you, but I just don't want to be associated with you in public. 
This is not a sign of a healthy relationship. And that's what these people are like with their God. And maybe it's tempting for you to be like that with your God in your workplace. Well, you'd prefer not to be associated with your God. Maybe you can, maybe you can relate. And, and now the results of this idolatry are interesting because as it goes on, we see they don't just end up hurting God's feelings. They actually, as a result of this, end up hurting other people as well. Verse 9. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their God with violence and deceit. This is happening in church. The way that they're acting, because they're worshipping these other gods, is, well, it resembles the other gods. Now, I'm hoping, who, who here is wondering what the leaping over, the stepping on the threshold thing's about? Anyone? Does anyone know? Does anyone remember what this is from back in the other bit of the Old Testament? Anyone? Super Bible nerds? Oh, Rafa thinks he does. <laughs> I'm not, not convinced you do, but afterwards you've got to come and tell me if you, if you got it right, okay? Now, look, if, if this is the bit, if you're that person who comes to church just hoping, a little part of you hoping that the preacher's going to tell you something that you didn't know before, or otherwise you're going to feel a little bit gypped, all right, this is your moment, okay? We're going to go have some fun. Now, um, does anyone um, remember a few hundred years ago, this is just in the moments before Israel asks God for a king, they're treating God like he's this cosmic ATM, right? Just a cash dispenser, but, but with no love, with, with no real trust in him. They had their God, but they wanted a king as well. So before all of these kings in this lineage, uh, when the li- set of those lines of kings was about to start, they reject God as their king and they want a human king. Because, of course, in their minds, God's so weak, he can't protect us from our enemies, so we need a king to do that. So what God does in response is that he allows the Israelites to be defeated. And he allows the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of his presence, the sort of the, the sort of almost almost like a it's sort of meant to almost represent like a seat you'd carry the king around on, you know, when you get those sedan chairs the kings are carried around on with four four bearers. Well it's like that's like the seat God walks around on. This ark was a representation of the presence of God and it was captured by the Philistines. And so they're scared. No no ark, no God, we're we're in trouble. Now, in order to mock Israel. And the fact that they don't think that he can fight their battles for them, they need a king. God smashes the Philistines while he's amongst their territories with, with plagues, with uh, boils and, and, and uh, plagues of rats. And calm as you like, all on his own, not a single human around, he ends up strolling back into Israel victorious with an ox cart full of gold from the Philistines. And just it's, it's like he's just strolling on back into town with these oxes walking straight towards Jerusalem. He's come back without a single person in an army, let alone a king, and he's plundered the Philistines. And the piece de resistance of that whole action was when the Philistines brought the ark into the temple of their god Dagon. And they awoke the next morning to find Dagon's head and his hands had fallen off. Do you remember this story now? His head and his hands had fallen off and they were lying on the threshold of the temple. And I'll read out to you 1 Samuel 5, verse 5. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. Now, why the, why the history lesson? Why the story? I mean, Zephaniah could have just said, oh, you know, Dagon worshippers, instead of saying those who leap over the threshold. What's the point? The point is, the nation that I single-handedly routed, plundered, making a mockery of their God along the way with not a single army in sight, you're worshipping that other God in my temple. Look what happened when I visited his. 
Why on earth is there anyone in my temple who's scared to step on the threshold in some sort of worry and, and respect for Dagon? When my, well, look what I've done to conquer him. And now you're imitating them in more ways than just dumb customs. There's violent crime happening in my temple because you're acting like everyone who follows their God. When God's people worship foreign gods, they end up doing very evil things. And I'll say that again because I want you to hear this for you now as well. When God's people worship foreign gods, things that are not him, when we put our trust in things that are not God, they end up doing very evil things. People who otherwise look very good. And don't think, but Christians would never do that. Well, it's not just not true. We can and we do. The Corinthians were suing each other. There are evil things that we do when we worship things other than God. Now, John Calvin said that our hearts are factories for idols, and he's right. Our hearts set our hopes on many things so that those things might be the thing that save us. And so it's worth us stopping and asking the question now, in a time where God was so jealous for the hearts of his people, what might God be jealous for in your heart? What sector of your heart might you have handed over to something else to have that thing heal your heart instead of handing it over to God, to have him heal your heart, to have him give you what you need? I mean, what, what, what have you devoted your heart to that might make God jealous? Have you devoted your heart to success in life? Will your heart find respite? Will you feel like, ah, I can relax when, well, when I've just got to this level of my career or when people just think of me as successful? Will your heart relax when you think the people around you like you and treat you like you matter? Will your heart relax when you own a house? Good luck in Hobart. Um, I promise I'm not saying this with lots of fingers pointing back at me as I say this. I don't have this problem at all. Um, will, will your heart relax when you've got the possessions that you think you need, when you've got the tech you think you need, when you've got the money you think you need, when you have got... Or... or when you have in your head got yourself, sorry, I'm looking forward to that. When you have in your head got yourself to the point of personal development where you like you, is that what you've handed your heart over to allow that thing to be the one that saves you? That thing to be the thing that makes you at peace? See, what do you regularly go to in order to soothe your heart? At least I was good this week. What are you too scared to be without? These are the things that we worship. Now, this is a mess, isn't it, um, for, for Israel back then? What's, what's at the heart of this? How did they get so bad? Because, I mean, for us, we can kind of hide a little bit of greed and, and idolatry of that in the heart. We can hide other sort of idols in our heart. We're, most of us aren't quite so overt as to stick up a statue there. Um, it's here in verse 12. This is how these guys had it so overtly, obviously visibly wrong. Verse 12. At that time, I will search... Oh, yeah, I do have it on the screen for you. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I'm going to walk around with a torch and shine a light on you. And I will punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, those who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. You see, the rot of this nation was the belief that God doesn't act. He doesn't do anything. Like, 
not sure why, just pretty sure he doesn't really do anything. Doesn't really change the world. The world just goes on. Uh, praying does, probably doesn't really work. That's the conviction. That's the lie that they've swallowed that has changed the country. Now, why didn't they believe that God takes action? Where did they get that idea from? What gave them the idea that God doesn't, doesn't step in and do stuff? Well, there's a little bit of their history that Zephaniah has provided us that can actually help us here. See, at the time, the king was this guy named Josiah, right? And his great-grandfather was Hezekiah, okay? There's the dates. There's a little bit of quick bio information. He's generally a good king. God bless this guy. But remember, this guy's also Zephaniah's granddad too, so... There's some there's other info that might become important. See, at one point, Hezekiah became proud and disobeyed God. But he later humbled himself. And so God didn't bring judgment on Jerusalem yet. And then he died. So Hezekiah's son came to the throne and he was an evil king. This is Manasseh. He was more evil than the nations that were in the land previously, to quote him. But when God started to punish Manasseh, he also humbled himself before God. And so God didn't bring judgment yet. And then he died. And then that king's son came to the throne. And he was even more evil than his father. He did not humble himself before God. He kept on doing the evil things. But God, and God still did not bring judgment on the land. And so when his son, Josiah, became king at all of eight years old, and our little king was good, and he's trying to restore it to the worship of its true God, Yahweh, he, he's trying to get people to get rid of idols, but the officials, the courtroom, the bureaucracy are still sacrificing to other gods. And it's because they don't think that Yahweh's going to do squat all about it. Can you get away with it? Sure, he threatens, but he's never actually done anything. Hezekiah was good, but he didn't cop it when he screwed up. Manasseh pretty much spat in God's face. And then Amon was even worse. But we're still here. We're no better off if we're faithful to him, and we're no worse off if we're faithless. Why bother? And maybe you think that about your life. I don't know, but maybe that's, that sort of thinking is infected into you, that you're no better off if you're faithful to God, and you're no worse off if you're faithless. So why bother? It's like when you get a substitute teacher at school. Like, do you remember back in those days? You know, substitute teacher comes in, you all realize, and you're like, oh, you know what's going to happen? You are going to find out very soon that they have no authority whatsoever, and they can't make you do anything, and it's a riot, and you do whatever you want. And that's Israel. I reckon God's not going to do anything. He's a subject teacher. And they got arrogant. Now, we would expect that attitude from, uh, towards Yahweh from the Ninevites, from these other nations that are getting included in the judgment. But here, it's endemic in Judah too. In God's very people, it's there too. They think their own God doesn't really do anything. And if your view of God is that he doesn't really do anything like a substitute teacher, sin will grab hold of you and you will become arrogant like a sneaky ninth grader. And you'll act like that. But to hear Zephaniah tell it, they don't know who they're dealing with. I've got a friend, his name's Rob. Um, 
he used to work in upper management in a big social services company and he, he, um, he was studying with us at Bible College uh, back when we were studying and he's the nicest, most gentle man you could ever meet with the best collection of music t-shirts, like, you know, the Beatles, like he just goes to concerts. He's just this sweet sort of pop culture loving, kind Christian guy and at work he makes everyone, like he makes sure everyone knows at work that he's a Christian and he's really well loved and everyone knows he's, he's really kind. Um, and yet, so one day there was um, a guy who was in trouble. He's the H- and Rob's the HR guy. So he, he's, he's the infamous conduct. He, I think he'd stolen something, not huge, but, but still he's stolen from the company. Like, this was not good. And he comes into Rob's office. And he was really relaxed. He, he, he came in, he was chatting and laughing and, and saying good day to Rob and all that. Because he, he just, he knows Rob's this really sweet, nice Christian guy. And he thought he was fine. And then, so when Rob says, sorry, mate, I don't think you understand the situation that you're in. Give us your badge. Here's security. They're going to escort you from the building. We'll send you your things. I just didn't know who he was dealing with. Have you got the right God in your head? In your heart? See, the God you and I pray to in the mornings is the one who acts and who deals with sin and sinners. As C.S. Lewis aptly puts it in his Narnia books, the King Aslan is not safe. He's good, but safe? Who promised that? See, this is scary stuff for me because I sin. And you sin too, so it's probably appropriate if it scares you. So there's a question we should ask ourselves. What is it that you feel like you can get away with? Have a genuine examination of yourself. See, this is the difficult thing. If, if Zephaniah is right, the worst sin is the one that you can get away with. Whereas that's the one that I'm kind of most likely to do, the one I'm most attracted to, the one I can get away with. Because you don't get rebuked, you don't then have to repent, and then you keep on hurting God and yourself and probably others as time goes on. Getting away with sin is not a good thing. I have to train and teach my soul that because it thinks the opposite. We need to bring things into the light. This is 1 John 1. Bring things into the light. Live in the light. And, and if, there is, if there is something like that for you, then confess it to God. Bring it into the light. Don't, don't let yourself get away with sin. Call yourself on it. Because we're not fooling God. And God's a God who acts. Now look, we're sort of moving into the, the end bit. You know the bit where you go to Jesus and things get all nice? If you've been to church a lot, you sort of you might be expecting something like that. And, and I was, I was as I'm sort of preparing. Where do we go with this? How does this move forward into the New Testament? The Bible's a big story. It starts with God creating a world and loving it. You know, filling the world, not wiping it out, not clearing it out. Um, and then, then we we've rejected God in these ways where we fail to trust and we fail to worship Him. Worshipped other things instead, created things instead of the Creator. And then God sent this people into the world in order to save the world through them. This people, nation of Israel, but then even the nation of Israel couldn't couldn't remain faithful to their God, so they couldn't rescue us. And then, and you got this story that leads towards Jesus. And. In my heart, I thought, oh, this is, I know. Well, let's, let's go to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. Um, because in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, you know, you've got all these people sort of saying, God's not going to do anything. So these scoffers, this is in the New Testament, right after Jesus, we're talking. And I think, oh, okay, everything just goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. That's the, that's the attitude that they had, right? That's where we should go. And then, so what do we do in response? We say, no, no, no. We realize that what God's doing, what God's doing is actually just being patient. 
And this is, this is all true, by the way. This is absolutely true. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. He will bring judgment. But he's being patient and waiting for those, for all people to come to repentance. That is him. That is his heart. That's what he is doing. And we can think, okay, great. So we, we know that God one day will judge. All well and good. But see, the thing is, I don't think that's actually where we should go from here. You see, there's two other things. God still acts now. God saves people. God's not just going to act in the future and we're we, we are sort of waiting around for God to act one day. God acts now. Evangelism changes lives. People become Christians. Part two of God saves now. Well, God disciplines those he loves. In Hebrews, God disciplines the ones that he loves. Oh, hold on. I've got my clicking wrong. Let me see if I can get there. Have you completely forgotten that God disciplines his sons, his daughters? In Corinth, that was even why some of the Corinthians were sick and some even died, says Paul, because they were sinning flagrantly. Don't, don't act as if, oh, okay, yes, we know God will act one day. And the whole problem that they had was that they were thinking, oh, God will never act. God will never act, but, but one day he will. No, no, no. God acts. And he disciplines us and he chastens us and rebukes us because he loves us very, very much if we are his sons and his daughters. And so what do we do? If this, in this big story that starts with creation, then a creation not trusting their God and then in a rescue mission that comes with Jesus, what we do is we actually look backwards to the time that God acted. The time that God did something. The thing that God was holding off on doing to Hezekiah, to Manasseh, to Amon, to Josiah, but then did to his own son. You see, the desolation, the decreation that we see in these two chapters, go back and read through it in the next couple of days. It is incredible. It is, a, 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 it is an absolute picture of desolation. That was poured out on his son Jesus at the cross. That's what the cross is. It is the cup of God's wrath and judgment falling on God himself who said, I'm going to step in and be desolate so that you won't be, to be shamed so that you won't be, to be stripped naked so that you won't be, to be punished, to be that desolation for you. And so how should that, how should that leave us walking? Well, ultimately, can you just go back to that the meme slide, you know the one, Tim, the, the jealousy meme slide. See, how do we walk? Like, my heart is tickled by lots of little things, right? And I think that I'm going to get stuff out of those things. I think, and, and there are blessings in the world, I'm not saying there's not, but, but God wants his people's heart. And if you're searching for the thing that's really going to fill your heart, don't get distracted. What are, you gonna, what are you likely to get distracted by? What grips your heart? What turns your head? Could you go to the, maybe one of the last slides, the Zephaniah 2.3 slide for me? Zephaniah 2, chapter 3 says this. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. 
perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. You see, the Lord has brought his day of anger. And it came on his son Jesus. Seek the one who is righteous. Seek Jesus. He's the only way that you're going to be saved. He's the only, he's the only, the only one who is going to, to, to save you from the coming wrath. The truth is God will act, and the only thing that will save anyone on that day is how God has already acted when he came in the person of Christ. So seek shelter in him. Don't be distracted. One last little thing. The, the, the purpose of this particular slide was trying to get the sense of how do you walk, right? I've, uh, I've, I've been contemplating this a lot lately because I'm trying to get back into sport and I literally think that being overweight has made me walk differently and I think it's causing me problems and it's, uh, it's all terrible. It's all terrible. Anyway, but, but there's problems with the way that I walk and I think there's problems with the way that some of us walk. Not specifically thinking people here, but it's just, it's humans. That's what we do, right? Uh, I, want you, I want you to imagine that you're in a room with the funny guy. So who's the funniest person, the most popular person, you know, the one who everyone wants to hang out with, the one who's always got the jokes and stuff. And when they're in a room and they know they're, they're a center of attention, right? You don't have to sort of tell me who the person, that person is at soul. Um, when they will, like they'll naturally just be, like there's a certain way that they hold themselves, right? They're telling the jokes, they're the one, and everyone's looking at them and that's not a bad thing, nothing wrong with that. But let's say then Chris Hemsworth walks in the room He's got kind of a level of charisma that I don't know if anyone else here is not going to quite match. And all of a sudden, the voices, the faces, every, all the attention is on him. And that person's stance is going to change. They're not still just going to sit there like they're all that, all the attention's on them. They might probably go up front, ask for an autograph or something like that. That's just naturally what's going to happen in the room. What is your stance, the way that you hold yourself before God? How do you walk? How do you live your life? What's your stance? Is there a humility there that God is the God who acts? Or is there an arrogance like he's a substitute teacher? Our hope is that the Lord might save the humble of the land on the day when his anger comes. That's our hope. So don't get distracted. Be humble and put your hope in Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, for many years, you let a lot of things go. And Israel got to thinking, maybe maybe you won't do anything ever. And yet, Lord, you were active then. You've acted in Christ. You're active now in our lives to discipline us, to save our friends from their unbelief. And you will act again one day when you bring that reigning king to be the king of the whole world. Father, if there's people here tonight who don't have their trust in Jesus, Father, I pray that somehow something in this of your word would, would seep into their heart. Together we ask, Lord, that you might help them to put their trust in you and humble themselves before you. Because that's what will save us on that last day. And Father, we ask for those of us who know you. Lord, we, we, we want to walk humbly with you. Father, help us to 
not to enjoy the hiddenness of our sins that other people can't see. Not to enjoy it when we get away with stuff. But Father, to be sad when we get away with it. And to bring it to the attention of someone we trust and then together to go to you to bring it to your attention. That we might humbly go to you. That you, we might shelter in you so that your anger would not fall on us. But we would be sheltered by your dear son, Jesus. And that in him we would know your love. Father, we ask for that kind of heart now. In Jesus' name, amen.